Heavenly Father, we thank you for this new day. We thank you for the sunshine that reminds us of the Son of Righteousness, our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the health we enjoy that makes, makes it possible for us to be here. We pray that your Spirit will be with us and lighten our minds and our hearts. Bless this campground. Everyone who is here, presenters and members and friends, and may your Holy Spirit teach and touch hearts and minds and move people into faith. Be with the children and the young people in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, you want to open to verse John. How many of you here were not here yesterday? Quite a few. Well, then it's helpful if I do repeat myself. Catch you up where we were when we ended yesterday. We were talking about the fact that <clears throat> to claim fellowship with Jesus while walking in the darkness is to deliberately mislead and deceive. It's hypocrisy, pretending to be something that we're not. Not just giving lip service to the truth, but living it. Put it into everyday practice. No matter what the consequences are. And that is so important because this kind of faithful living strengthens the church for its last hour mission. John says in chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light, <clears throat> in the midst of the world's darkness. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So understanding the nature of the church as one body and understanding the mission that's required by the demands of the last hour, and that's where we are in history. Can we really be in fellowship with one another if we're not on the same page when it comes to both the message and the mission of the church? Did you know that the mission of the church is not to transform society 
It's to transform people. And it's the transformed people who transform society. You are the light of the world, Jesus said to his disciples. Let your light shine before others. Why did he say that? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's a difference between good works and the works of the flesh. You know, the God produces good works in us. He wants people to see them. Why? Because when they do, he gets the glory, not us. And what does that mean, that he gets the glory? It means he gets the credit, not us. And those works are good only if they are of the light and not of the darkness. Whoever follows me, Jesus says, will not walk in darkness. What darkness? Spiritual, theological, philosophical, ecclesiastical, cultural, moral darkness. But he says they will have the light of life to illuminate and guide and direct. We're not supposed to be secret believers. We're supposed to have an influence on the world for good, for righteousness. Now, after John talks about walking in the light and practicing the truth, as opposed to walking in darkness, and not practicing the truth, he, he talks about sin, which we mentioned yesterday is the basic human problem, sin. That little three-letter word, sin. A lot of people don't like it when you talk about that. I remember when I was a Lutheran minister, every once in a while somebody would mention that at a church board meeting and tell me that folks are complaining because you talk too much about sin.
Anyway, John's logic is relentless when he talks about sin. Because the hypocrisy of claiming to be in fellowship with Jesus while walking in darkness misleads and deceives people. It's the worst kind of sinning, misleading and deceiving people. And that kind of hypocrisy and deception will not serve the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. In other words, the world has to know that we are here When I was a student at Northern Michigan University in Marquette, my wife and I worshiped at St. Mark's Lutheran Church, which was a part of the Finnish Evangelical Lutheran Church. And by the way, we still appreciate the spiritual heritage that we received in that Finnish Evangelical Church. But anyway, that's when I preached my first sermon in that church. And we were received warmly by that congregation. And so when my graduation was approaching, I decided that I would paint a portrait of that church. I was going to be an artist when I was in my teens, but the Lord had different plans. And so I painted this quite, quite a large painting of that church with a dark background, some beams of light coming up. And a couple of years ago, I got word that that church was closing And so I inquired if I could get the picture back. And so they were happy to return it to me. They had a very nice gathering. There were only 11 members left. But they were all there one Sunday afternoon, and my wife and I drove from, from our house to Marquette for that occasion, and they presented, returned the painting to me and thanked me for it and so on. And uh, I had it in our house for a while, but I didn't know where to put it. What am I going to do with it? It was pretty big. We didn't have any room. And one day it finally dawned on me, I should give it to the new conference office. And so I did, that's where it is. But the whole point is, John says, how does he say it? I can't find it right now. But anyway, when I first painted that picture, my focus was on 
the light that was shining out of the church window that had a big cross in it and it was reflected on the ground on the snow. But now when I look, look at it, the, my focus is on the, on the sky, dark sky with beams of light that seem to me to portend the second coming of Jesus. In other words, I'm see, I see something different in that picture that I painted way back then. Today, because of what I know, than I saw then. And it was a sad thing to think about when that church was closing down. It's now a clinic. A doctor bought it and turned it into a clinic. But that's what happened. That's what happened. The light that was once shining has gone out. And that's happening all over. There are four large Lutheran churches in, in the western end of the UP that have lost so many members that they have one minister now, four churches. And they don't know what to do. And let me tell you, that's what happens when you abandon sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Anyway, John says in chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and is doing the devil's work. Wow, that's pretty serious. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, what sin? Look at the context. Look at the context. Let's read that. Chapter 1, 1 John. This is the message we have heard, verse 5, from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. So, Saying one thing and doing another, doing the opposite, living a lie, walking in spiritual darkness, not practicing the truth. We deceive ourselves. And self-deception is the worst kind. Because if you deceive yourself, you won't hesitate to deceive other people and convince yourself you're actually presenting the truth.
Now, you know, now we're, we have to listen to all the politicians because the big election is coming up next year. And I, I listen to the news quite a bit. But as I, as I listen to them talking, the question that comes to my mind every time, is he telling the truth? Is she telling me the truth? Or do they just say what they have to say to get elected? And if that is the truth, then they're deceiving me. It's deceptive. And how can I trust if I'm being deceived? Ellen White says in, in Third Testimonies, page 361, that self-deception begins with not having a sense of the sinfulness of their own natures. She says, they are far from God, yet they take great satisfaction in their lives when their conduct is abhorred by God. This class will ever be at war with the leadings of the Spirit of God. And then in First Testimonies, page 214, she says, these are perilous times. Now, if the times were perilous when she wrote it, what about now? These are perilous times, she says, for the church of God. And the greatest danger now is that of self-deception. Individuals pro professing to believe the truth are blind to their own danger. And then in Four Testimonies, page 88, she says, Fearful is the power of self-deception on the human mind. What blindness setting light for darkness and darkness for light. As John says in chapter 1, verse 8, self-deception ends with the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, in other words, if we say everything is okay with the church, with the message it preaches, even though it contradicts the Bible, we make him a liar John says, and the truth is not in us. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now, nothing could be more devastating to the mission of the church of the last hour. So, what must that church do then? 
if this is the context in which we exist, if, in which we worship and evangelize and reach out? Well, the answer is confess, repent. Experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God and so be cleansed, as John says, of all unrighteousness. Notice something in that verse in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, after the forgiveness of sin, there's more that God will do for us and in us. <coughs> the cleansing now begins. He's preparing us, not only for righteous living, but for heaven. He'll, he's cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And what is the word that the Bible uses to refer to that process? Sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It means being made holy. Wow. Turn your Bible to Second Peter, I think it's in Second Peter. First chapter. Verse verse three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. While we're still here, God is preparing us. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He is preparing us for that place in heaven. 
So if, if, we're, if we're being hypocritical, we need to confess, repent, and experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God and be cleansed of all unrighteousness. And so, so we're able to fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. The church entrusted by God with a special mission in that hour must first deal with the sins that hinder it from fulfilling that mission. And people don't like it when you talk like that. A couple of years ago, together with some other folks, I was invited to uh, uh, Secrets Unsealed television ministry. And during one of the panel discussions, when it was my turn, I said, we have to repent. That's what we have to do. And I heard about that. That was not what I should say. I can't, I, you know, I don't want to hear about that. But that's what the Word of God tells me. Because the mission of the church in the last hour does not involve the imposition of God's truth upon other people, but the submission of God's church to his truth for the sake of others. It's a big difference. And in that is to be found an imitation of Christ that comes closest to the real thing. So I think we all recognize that we're living in serious times, not only as a nation, but as a church. The Bible points to God as its author, but it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of the different books, it presents the characteristics of the, of the different writers. And Ellen White recognizes that in Great Controversy, page five in the introduction. And I, I, when I read that, I said, that's right, she's right. God is the author, it's written by several writers. And when it comes to the New Testament, there were eight. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, and James. Five writers, one author, five writers. 
and the three major contributors were Luke, Paul, and John. John wrote the gospel, first and second John, and the revelation. In fact, he was, he was one of the first disciples that Jesus chose. You can find that in Matthew chapter 4. Yes? Uh, there was um, a trivia question in a book recently that asked who the author of Colossians was, and, it, and the answer suggested that it was John. I've always assumed it was Paul. Now, I'm having a hard time hearing you. I've got hearing aids and I, you've got to speak up. The book of Colossians? Yes, that's Paul. And some people say that it is John, but I, it doesn't. That's, that was, some people are saying that John wrote it. I don't know where they get that. <laughs> I don't know. What does it say? It was, it was a trivia question in a book. The answer is set down. What does it say? Chapter 1. Paul, first word. <laughs> An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. That's what it says. And that's what it means. Now that's not complicated. That's, that's simple, to use a fancy word, hermeneutics. <laughs> what does the Bible say? All right. John has been referred to throughout history as the apostle of love. He wrote more about love than any other New Testament writer. And though he wrote a lot about God's love for the world, for his church, and about believers' love for one another, his major emphasis is on the believer's love for Christ. And in this letter, his focus is not on the world that lies in the power of the evil one, as he says in chapter 5, verse 19, but on God's people, on the church. That's why it's so important and relevant for us today. And more precisely, John's focus is on the church of the last hour. Chapter 2, verse 18. For which he says it is crucial to be capable of distinguishing between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 4, 6. Now, why is it important that the last hour church be capable of making a distinction between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? 
It's because that church is the one that has to understand and fulfill the mission that is required by the demands of the last hour. That's why. And it is that church which must be prepared to meet those demands. So John devotes this letter, following the first three verses, to that preparation. And the church of today needs to listen to 1 John. Why? Well, because it's the church of the last hour. And it's threatened by forces that would sabotage and subvert it at the very time that its clear and courageous witness is most needed in the world that God so loved. Now, it may be disturbing to some folks, but the apostle of love does not begin this letter by talking about love. Why not? Because love must never be distorted by the church of the last hour so that it subverts that church's passion for truth. Now, I'm going to be specific so you know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the, what, what is one of the major cultural issues that we're being faced with today? Pardon? Homosexuality? Yes. Homosexuality and same-sex marriage and, and uh, confusion. And we're being, culture is telling us, well, you have to love everybody. You have to love these people. Does God love them? Yes. He loved them so much, he sent his son to the cross to die for them too. Are we to show his love to them? Yes. For what purpose? So that the Holy Spirit can use us to help bring them into the fellowship of his redeemed people and experience transformed lives so that they no longer live in darkness but in the light. That's love. That's love the way the Bible presents it. Is that being mean? No, our hearts go out to folks that are struggling with sin. We struggled ourselves till the Lord found us. Our hearts goes out, to, goes out to them. Our doors are open. You know, everybody is welcome in our, in our church to worship with us and fellowship with us. But when it comes to preparation for baptism and an inclusion in the, in the fellowship of the body of Christ, 
we have to go by what the Bible says because he wants transformed people who are righteous, who are living righteous lives, not unrighteous. You see, the, see where the, the issue is and the problem is? So love must never be distorted. The kind of love that the Bible talks about. When people ask me questions about these things, I always tell them, read 1 John. Read 1 John. The answer is there. The love that he talks about is in a far different context than, than, than the context of the fuzzy idea of love that is popular in large segments of Protestantism today. It's the context of righteousness. And the Apostle Paul underscores this in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. Paul says the coming of the lawless one the Antichrist is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So John begins, chapter 1, verse 5, with a call to the church of the last hour to practice the truth. Practice it. Do it. Live it. Preach it. To not walk in spiritual darkness. To walk in the light as he is in the light. It's a call to practice the truth that God has revealed in his word. And in his gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, John quotes Jesus, who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Spiritual, theological, philosophical, cultural, moral darkness. But will have the light of life to illuminate, to guide, to direct. He begins with a call to confess, to repent, and experience the forgiveness of a faithful and just God, and so be cleansed of all unrighteousness, and, and in the process be, be pre prepared, enabled, empowered to fulfill the mission that is required by the last hour, and trusted by God with a special mission in that hour. That church must deal with the sins that hinder it from fulfilling that mission. What comes next? What comes next in chapter 2, verse 5? A very clear exposition as to how the confessing believer can know, be certain, that he or she is in a saving relationship with God. Certain that we are in him, as John says. Why? So that we don't deceive ourselves. 
as he says in chapter 1, verse 8. He makes it unambiguously clear that there is specific evidence of the reality of that relationship. Evidence that can be observed by the world. And again, the Word of God does not leave us in the dark about the crucial matter, this crucial matter in the last hour. Let's read chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we may know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, God's commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Did you know he, he repeats himself three times in this letter? Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then he repeats it again in chapter 5, second verse. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, however, so that there's no misunderstanding, so that he cannot be accused of legalism and works righteousness, he prefaces his uncompromising statement of truth by making it absolutely clear that he understands the gospel. He had just said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse us, not just forgive, but to clean us up. And he underlines the truth that is often overlooked in contemporary Christianity, that sin, listen, is not the determining or ruling force in the believer's life. Now, have you, have you heard it said? I have heard it many times. Even since I've become an Adventist, believe it or not. We will always be sinners and commit sin. As though sin was the ruling force. 
as though the gospel of grace has no power to transform a person's life. If anybody asks you that or says that to you, tell them to read 1 John. Because there's the answer. For John, righteousness is the determining, ruling force in the born-again believer's life. Not sin. If you don't believe that you can have victory over sin, you're deceiving yourself. The Word of God makes it absolutely clear that the atmosphere in which the Christian believer lives is that of righteousness, not the atmosphere of sin. And so he says, I'm, not, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Chapter 2, verse 1. Truth is the antidote to sin. God's truth. And Jesus said in John, John reports in chapter 8 of his gospel, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Amen. Now, this is kind of a footnote here. The Apostle John has made us aware of two major theological issues faced by the last hour church. Two issues that impinge on its understanding of both its message and its mission in that hour. On the one hand is the rejection of the biblical concept of human sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He says. On the other hand, the issue is the rejection of the biblical concept of victory over the power of sin to dominate and control human life, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Both of them are major deceptions. The first deceives the world which then is led to think it needs no savior. You know, an atheist would accept the idea of God if that God were not a moral God. If he had not established standards of righteousness by his law, and if he did not hold mankind accountable, it's not the idea of God that is disliked, but the idea of sin that's, that is disliked. Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist philosopher, wrote a book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Have you ever heard of it? He says on page 50 that the Christian God may exist but he also says on page 205, kindness is inhibited by the belief in 
sin. While the second deception deceives, while the first deception deceives the world, the second deception deceives the church, which then is led to be content with the appearance of godliness while denying its power. Could you state that second one again, please? The Christian God, excuse me, I'm looking at the wrong place. The church is deceived by the idea that the appearance of godliness is okay while you deny its power. 2 Timothy 3.5 So then to his preface to his book, John adds, but But usually introduces a contrast. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, don't say you have no sin, confess it. Receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of a faithful and just and loving God. Then live in the atmosphere of righteousness. Because whoever does not practice righteousness, he says in chapter 3, verse 10, is not of God. This is what it means to be a born-again believer. And Christian believers ought to know, on the authority of the Word of God, that everyone, 1 John 5, 18, who has been born of God, does not Keep on sinning, he says. But he who was born of God, God protects. He who was born of God protects the believer. That's Jesus. And the evil one does not touch him. Those are powerful words. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Christ the righteous, who will represent you in the Father's presence. John, and I want to make this clear, John does not hold to the mistaken idea of sinless perfection. That's not what he's talking about. He understands the fallenness of mankind. He says this is not to condone sin when he says, if you sin, we have an advocate. He doesn't say that in, to condone sin or to diminish its offense to God, but to uplift and glorify the only one who can save from the consequences of any sin that one may fall into. And because, because he, Jesus alone, is the propitiation. The Greek means to be merciful for our sins. 
Jesus is merciful. God is merciful. He is our reconciler. He reconciles us to God because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. These are basic teachings, truths, doctrines. Some people don't like the word doctrine either. But that's what truth is. It's a doctrine of the New Testament. They must not be lost sight of, diminished or perverted. And so what follows is also a basic teaching of the New Testament, which must be not, not be lost sight of, diminished or perverted. That which distinguishes and identifies the church of the last hour is faith in Jesus as the advocate, as the propitiation for our sins, and keeping the commandments of God. And he repeats that three times, as I already mentioned. The, the church of the last hour is a commandment-keeping church, empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God. The idea that knowledge of God's love is the supreme value and that how one lives is of no importance is a deception that has no place in the theology or the lifestyle of the last hour church. The Word of God makes it absolutely clear that only a life lived in harmony with the will, the Word of God is reliable is the reliable evidence of a saving relationship with him. We're supposed to close now, but there's no meeting after this. Can I finish? Any theology that, not, that, that does not hold to that New Testament truth is a lie. Any lifestyle that does not bear witness to this New Testament truth is false and hypocritical. And then in order to impress it on the reader's mind, John says it another way. He says, chapter 2, verse 5, By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. To abide in Christ means, means to be united with Christ. Listen to Jesus' own words quoted by John in the Gospel, 50, chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The spirit of obedience. That's the way Jesus walked. And how crucial it is for the theology, the message, and the mission of the church of the last hour. If that church is to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour. We have to have this right. We have to have this straight. Faith in the righteousness of Christ separated from the practice of righteousness is not the message of the New Testament. I don't care what anybody says. It's not the message of the New Testament. Now, how important is all of this? John says, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That's what it means to be born again. No wonder Martin Luther wrote. He said in his antinomian disputation, he said, if we cast the law commandments aside, we shall no longer retain Christ. Now, I want to end with telling you a little story. My personal spiritual mentor, he was a professor in the Lutheran Theological Seminary. And even after I became an Adventist, we maintained our relationship. He was a real spiritual friend to me. In fact, when I went down to see him, when I was faced with the crisis of Adventism and so on. And I, I spent two days with him and went through the whole thing. I talked for two days and he looked at me, didn't take his eyes off my face for two days when we were talking. And finally I had said it all. I didn't know what else to say. And I just sat back and, and waited. What's this theologian, this Lutheran theologian going to say to me? This is what he said, I'll never forget. He said, Ray, you need to ask God what he is trying to say to you. And that was like God speaking to me through him. Because when I left his house, I drove right to Andrews University, parked my camper in the seminary parking lot, and went inside and began to meet people. That's how it started. I wasn't yet ready. I didn't make my decision yet. But that was the result of what he said. And we have maintained, we maintained our relationship all through the years since then. Eventually he retired. He moved to Minneapolis and we kept in touch. He stopped over every once in a while. 
I'll remember the last conversation I had with him over the phone. We talked for maybe an hour, and then he said to me, he said, Ray, I have concluded that this is a Christless church. And he was talking about his church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And I thought, I got to go down and sit at his feet and, and listen to him and say, what did he mean? Two days later, I got a phone call from his son who said, Dad died this morning. But he wanted me to, to, to tell you he wants you to preach at his funeral. I had two days to get ready. I think what he meant was exactly what I just said. If you throw out God's law, you throw out Christ. They are united. They're not contradictory. And by the way, one of the things that uh, I appreciated so much as I began the transition is when I heard people say that Seventh-day Adventists are people of the book. But I don't hear that anymore. Are we still the people of the book? I want to be. I don't know what would have happened to me if I had remained in, in that denomination with everything that's happened since then if God had not intervened. It was a struggle, yes. Painful, yes, many ways. I really had to look deep into Adventism. But you know, Luther helped me. Luther helped me make a decision about the Sabbath when I read in his large catechism on the, on the Sabbath commandment, the commandment was there first. And you know what it said in the English? It said, you shall hallow a day of rest. And I, I looked up in, in Luther's German Bible, his translation of the Bible into German, and it was accurate. Gedenke des Sabbatages, das du ihn heiligest. Remember the Sabbath day that you keep it holy. But when he wrote his catechism, he changed it to, you shall hallow a day of rest. We don't hallow anything. Only God makes holy. You can't make anything holy. The Adventist church doesn't make the Sabbath holy because we keep the seventh day. God already made it holy in the beginning by his word and command. So I sat there with my mouth open. Luther helped me become a Seventh-day Adventist and a Sabbath keeper. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.